The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. In this episode of the Climate 201 series, we're continuing to talk about negative emissions technologies. Now, in the previous episodes of this series, we have talked about how negative emissions technologies have become an increasingly important part of the envisioned climate futures in IPCC reports and in what I guess you might call mainstream climate change scenarios. We've also talked about the pushback that has arisen from the increasing dependence of these scenarios to get to 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius on massive amounts of negative emissions technologies and the various reasons why there has been this pushback. And one of the concepts that we brought up in the last episode is that the promise that these technologies, which as yet have not been deployed at scale and have not been uh, accelerated to the, the point where they can take billions of tonnes of CO2 out of the atmosphere, the reason why it is concerning that this is happening is because there is a concern that there might be something called mitigation deterrence. So the idea behind the mitigation deterrence philosophy is that if people and policymakers believe and allow themselves to construct these scenarios, which say we can trade off uh, decarbonizing quickly now for deploying these negative emissions in the future, then it might make them hold off on that mitigation deterrence. And we know that mitigation is going to require a lot of action, it's going to require a lot of investment, it's going to require a lot of physically building new infrastructure, and it will require, ultimately, putting the fossil fuel companies out of business. Given that all of this is happening, we have to understand that there are plenty of reasons why politicians, particularly those who are uh, in bed with the fossil fuel companies, might want to delay this and deter it to the future. And we know that mitigation deterrence can be a problem when we see politicians focusing on things like, for example, new technical innovations rather than deployments that can be made and the promise of negative emissions to clean up after our mess, essentially. So so in this episode, we're going to talk in much more detail about this concept of mitigation deterrence because I think it does have precedent in how we've dealt with climate change previously. And it's not like this hasn't happened before. So... Most of this is going to be based around an excellent paper that was written by Professor Duncan McLaren of the University of Lancaster and a colleague of his with Nils Markerson. And this this paper is called The Co-Evolution of Technological Promises, Modelling, Policies and Climate Change Targets. Now, I know that when I refer to these academic papers, they're not always available to everyone who's listening. But thankfully, uh, the, the Professor McLaren did a summary of his article on Carbon Brief, So if you look for technological promises, policies and climate change targets and co-evolution and uh, McLaren himself, you can find a accessibly written summary of the paper that is for free up on Carbon Brief. 
And uh, we could talk all day about how terrible it is that these academic papers are not available and are behind paywalls so often. And also the fact that the language that academics are forced to use means that our conclusions are so often impenetrable to people outside of the field. Um, But the fact is that McLaren has done the excellent extra work that means his conclusions can be read by a much wider audience. So if you want more information here, I would urge you to read that article. And we're hoping to get an interview with the professor at some point, which may come out shortly if I have it done by the time this eventually releases. So, you know, when I saw this paper, I was a little bit mad because I sort of had the same idea a few years ago. But I'm sure many, many climate change scholars did when we look at the history of climate change. We've seen how these promises and these technologies that are supposed to come along and fix it have evolved and changed over time. But luckily for me and for everyone, he published a paper that was much better than anything I could have written. So let's let's talk about this story here then. He describes how, as the climate negotiations have continued uh, since the 1980s, when we had the first major world summits, the basic story has been the same. Targets have changed, models have changed, and the situation that we're in in terms of the climate has changed, generally getting a lot more dire. But we have always promised ourselves that some technology would be the main thing that would come along and save us and help us out and allow us to fulfil our targets. But just not quite yet. So the essential point that the authors make here is that you can tell the history of our attempts to combat climate change as a sort of ongoing cycle. There's some big climate change conference, we set some kind of target, climate modelling develops further and there's a new generation of model results to analyse, everyone touts some amazing new technologies that are going to come along and save the day to make the target achievable, then basically after this round the technologies don't materialise or aren't deployed nearly enough. Uh, often because there are obvious financial barriers for them to being deployed in the first place, or policymakers and politicians don't take it seriously enough. And consequently, we miss the target. So we redefine the target, the target changes in a sense, and the cycle begins all over again. Professor McLaren's point is in fact that the nature of the models, the nature of the political discussions, and the nature of the targets all interact with each other to determine what we think about when we think about climate change and climate policy. And that, in essence, the way that this often looks is that these technological dreams and visions have provided an excuse for our continued inaction and delay in transforming our society towards one that doesn't depend on fossil fuels. And, you know, it's interesting. I I compare this a lot to perhaps, you know, you will know, I certainly know from my own life, when you have personal problems, you can find yourself in cycles of of negative thinking or cycles of negative actions. um, And... Every single time there's going to be some rationalisation for behaving the way you behave. Uh, Every single time there's going to be some reason why you are following the course of action that you do. Um, Perhaps after a while you can even see the pattern and spot the pattern and understand the pattern and realise that it's destructive. But it still remains the case that even just seeing that doesn't actually take away the incentives and the interplay between different dynamics that allows you to continue finding yourself trapped in this cycle. And I think... Um, we'll have to ask him, but I think Professor McLaren feels that climate policy and climate discourse have spent far too much time trapped in this particular cycle, and we really need to start identifying that so that we can, as a species and as a community who talk about these things, change our behaviour. So I think this is a really good piece of analysis, so I want to get into it as a potted history of how this kind of thinking has happened again, and why you should be suspicious of it this time, and how we should understand how these technological promises and targets are evolving together. So, as we said, the first major summits started in the late 1980s and early 1990s, 
and at that time the promising technology of choice was nuclear power and energy efficiency. So it was a pretty simple uh, choice at that point. We knew that we had to get off fossil fuels and preferably use fewer fossil fuels. Nuclear power was the only other game in town that was delivering electricity at scale, so the idea was that we would essentially switch to nuclear. At that stage, renewables were quite nascent. At the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992, the first major global climate conference to come to a conclusion, they set the goal, and the goal then was stabilising atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases to a level that would avoid dangerous climate change. So you have to look at this as a scientific target, right? There's a specific thing that we're acting on, and that is the atmospheric concentration of the greenhouse gases. And then there's a slightly vaguer part, which is saying at a level that would avoid dangerous climate change. I mean, this is where you get your real leeway, right? Because who's to say what is dangerous and what isn't dangerous? We know from the climate science that exists at the moment that our anthropogenic activities, the one or so degrees of warming that we've already engaged in, that we've already foisted on the Earth, has contributed to the extinction of species, has contributed to the destruction of the coral reefs, has contributed to the increased probability and severity of natural disasters, including heat waves that have been deadly, uh, including the intensity and duration of storms, all sorts of things. There is good evidence that climate change that has happened already has contributed to that. So what does dangerous mean? Well, you know, it's dangerous already. Um, is it dangerous enough to qualify as dangerous climate change? And of course, also, there's this slight get out there in terms of stabilising atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases. So there's not a target on our emissions or anything. It's just saying that we need to stop the increase of the concentrations of greenhouse gases. Now, at the time, the science was not entirely clear as to whether we needed to get to net zero emissions for this to happen, or whether there would come an equilibrium where, for example, uh, the land sink or the ocean sink would be able to take up what humans were doing. So there's no explicit requirement to stop emissions, but there is one to cut emissions. And then, of course, the technological promise, as we've discussed, energy efficiency and nuclear power. But the hopes for nuclear power to take over from fossil fuels never really materialised. In the UK, for example, the high cost meant that only one power plant commissioned in this era of the late 1980s and early 1990s was ever actually built. If you look more broadly at the primary energy supply for the world, so remember this is the energy that goes into the system rather than the end uses of the energy, nuclear was around 2-3% in the early 1980s, compared to 85% for fossil fuels. Now, it did rise to maybe 6-7% to by the mid-1990s, but it has actually declined since then. The point is that if you were saying in the late 1980s and early 1990s that a new nuclear renaissance, uh, driven by our fears over climate change, was going to displace fossil fuels, you were sadly mistaken. There may have been hopes at a build-out at that time, but they did not materialise. And people have often talked about how uh, much you would need to do to actually provide all of the energy that humanity is consuming from nuclear power plants. And you'll hear figures cited where they'll say things like, we would need to construct one new nuclear power plant every day for 30 years or some something along those lines. Um, I don't have the precise figure, but that sort of thing is the scale that we would have to do. And of course, each of those plants actually takes decades to construct. So you'd need a construction project across many countries where you'd be planning and constructing dozens of power plants. And as it is, in some nations, we have actually seen that there are 
fewer ones being constructed than there were before, and they're not being constructed at a replacement rate. So, you know, in the UK and the US, nuclear power has basically stagnated. In some countries, like Japan post-Fukushima, it's actively declining. And we know that there are many countries that don't have access to nuclear power, and there's still controversy politically over which countries can actually have that due to proliferation concerns. And as for the targets, well, we haven't stabilised the concentrations of greenhouse gases. They continue to rise by about 2 to 3 parts per million of CO2 per year. Since 1992, the concentration of CO2 has increased from around 350 parts per million to around 410 parts per million in the atmosphere, compared to 280 parts per million before the industrial era. By 1997, then, we move on to another cycle of conferences and promises and ideas. We had then the Kyoto Protocol, where most of the world's nations signed up to actually cut their emissions by a certain percentage by a certain date. Given that the focus was now on cutting emissions, technologies that would allow a fraction of emissions to be cut or avoided came to the fore. So, for example, if you have a goal to cut your emissions by 20%, then it makes sense to try and do things that are going to cut your emissions by 20%, but not necessarily any more than that. So this included efficiency, like we talked about before, but it also included things like switching from fossil fuels to biofuels and the idea of carbon capture and storage. So if your goal is to reduce the emissions from the transport sector by 10%, then you can argue that you could get there by replacing 10% of the fuels with biofuels. And then, of course, the idea of carbon capture and storage becomes a lot more important in this era as well. Now, at the time, the models were also evolving, and the models were getting good enough to start to figure out how to convert our emissions into greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. And this is important because it means we can change what the target is, right? Previously, we just have to say, well, whatever we do, we want to stop this concentration of greenhouse gases going up because that's what's causing the warming and that's what's causing the damage. Now we can invert that and we can figure out what the emissions are and we can start to have a target on emissions instead. There were plenty of amazing projections for how all of our current fossil fuel power plants would soon be using carbon capture and storage, capturing the emissions at the source where fossil fuels are burned and then burying them underground. The promise was considered so great that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published an entire report on CCS in 2005 on carbon capture and storage. There is not much more depressing in the climate field than looking at these projections now, because CCS has basically not been deployed at all at any meaningful scale. Yes, pilot projects exist, but beyond that we don't have much. And it has lent a lot of credibility to people who have said that CCS was obviously something that was a solution that fossil fuel companies would not be averse to. Because if you don't actually deploy CCS, but simply deploy the promise of CCS, um, you can say, well, we can continue extracting fossil fuels, and at some point in the future we'll install the CCS, which will mean that we can continue using fossil fuels. And so there, there is a, an extent to which CCS legitimises the further use of fossil fuels. Now, does that mean that we can actually get to net zero and does that mean we can actually fulfil our targets without it? Well, no, perhaps not. But as a panacea, it certainly doesn't seem to be happening and certainly doesn't seem to be the most likely way that we will do these things now. But what this did mean is that you have lots of fossil fuel projections from the era where they were saying, we'll just replace everything with CCS that haven't come true. So I'll give you an example. In 2006, the Australian Coal Institute projected by 2020 that 25% of Australian emissions would be captured with CCS. In 2020, which we've now lived through, just about, it's just 0.2%. 
The IEA projected that we would need a billion tonnes of CCS a year by 2028 to stay below 2 degrees. We have just 3% of that today, and there's very little that is being planned in the pipeline. So they thought we needed a billion tonnes of CCS a year to stay below 2 degrees, and we have around 30 million tonnes, just 3%. And there's nowhere near that much being planned. There's actually less CCS capacity under construction or in planning now than there was a decade ago. The global financial crisis helped to kill what little investment there was for this stone dead, and even the plans to do that have not recovered yet. A few pilot projects were started, and a few government schemes were initiated and then cancelled, particularly in the UK, where a major governmental project to develop better CCS was essentially cancelled halfway through. In other words, any technologist or any futurist or any modeler or any scenario drawer-up can draw an exponential line on a graph, but that doesn't mean that it's actually going to be deployed. And to all intents and purposes, carbon capture and storage at present is just a few dozen pilot projects that account for less than 0.1% of global CO2 emissions. Barely a dent. And again, you have to combat your internal techno-optimism here, because we hear stories of technologies that succeed, okay? So we're used to the idea of, yes, initially everyone mocked the computer and said there would only be five of them, and there was only 0.01% of the population had one, and now they're ubiquitous. Well, that's true, but that obviously hasn't happened to every technology. And when there are big structural systematic reasons that are preventing technologies from being adopted, there's no reason to think that they will necessarily take off and produce that nice curve that we all know. Um, I think our faith in technology and the way that we focus on the technologies that have successfully been adopted makes that clear. I mean, for example, people used to talk about hydrogen-powered cars, and now we see that the electric vehicles are doing better than them in most circumstances, and that many of the hydrogen-powered cars, the fuel cell cars, are, you know, the projects are falling by the wayside a bit more. McLaren argues, essentially, that the idea that carbon capture and storage would be available, the promise of clean coal and clean natural gas power plants, how often did you hear that, has actually allowed fossil fuel companies the social license to continue operating. If we faced the reality that they weren't doing enough and were not producing credible plans or credible levels of investment in CCS to actually decarbonise their operations, then we would start to talk about whether we should be allowing them to operate in the way they do at all. Because they can project this world where coal and natural gas are still powering a lot of electricity generation just as soon as we get this CCS technology developed. But then, of course, the fossil fuel companies who are in the biggest position to do this at meaningful scale often push the incentive to develop this technology and the requirement to develop this technology onto governments. So, you know, there is an alternative world where instead of saying this and instead of having big problems because the UK cancelled its pilot project, we had simply said to the fossil fuel companies, you know, you guys know that you're polluting, you have to figure out a way to stop doing it or we'll stop you from being able to operate and replace you with other things. But that was considered too difficult, uh, too politically controversial, and I think they were too concerned that the alternatives would be much more expensive and therefore unpalatable. And so instead, we've had this situation where the fossil fuel industry has been promising CCS will come along and help us out, uh, aided by some scientists and modelers. And it hasn't. Um, There hasn't been credible levels of deployment that are going to get us to this CCS heavy world. And there's been less pressure as a result to switch away from these fuels or shut down these industries. Because these industries have been able to say that the Incentives have to be with government to develop better CCS technologies and proof-of-concept technologies, and therefore it's all been tied up in these projects that take 5-10 years, and uh, the can has been kicked down the road for actually deploying it at scale.
By 2009 and the Copenhagen Conference, it is clear that the Kyoto Protocol has failed, with many major countries not meeting their targets for emissions cuts and others like the US not involved at all. This is where scenarios with negative emissions, mostly in the form of bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or BECs, start showing up. At the same time, the target started to shift again. So remember, at first we wanted to stabilise the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, then it was about cutting emissions. Now, with some new science, it starts to be about carbon budgets and cumulative emissions, which we've dealt with in previous episodes, as the climate models start to show that the impacts of climate change might roughly scale with the cumulative amount of CO2 emitted into the atmosphere. Now, it may be true that it might be easier for us to get to concrete climate policies by imagining a cumulative lot of emissions that we can allow ourselves before we stop. Then you can get into these interesting questions of how you parcel out and ration those carbon emissions for the remaining amount of society, and you can think about how policies might work in that way. The problem with stabilising concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere is we didn't know exactly how the climate system would respond, and it wasn't clear how to do it. The trouble with emissions cuts is that we now know that, providing you keep emitting, the world will keep warming, although obviously more slowly as you emit less and less. So eventually you have to stop emitting, or at the very least extract everything that you emit in some other way, so that your impact on the climate is net zero. Once you have this idea that eventually your emissions have to be net zero, the idea of a carbon budget, a total amount of carbon you can emit until you get to net zero, these ideas go together very nicely, and you end up having quite a nice thing and an easier thing to shoot for. But of course, the problem with these budgets is that once you have a budget, you can think about borrowing, right? And so it legitimises the idea that you can get to negative emissions. The net in net zero implies that you'll need some negative emissions somewhere to take out the stuff that you're going to continue emitting for whatever reason. And the carbon budget itself gives you this idea that you can borrow carbon from your future self by promising negative emissions at some point in the future to make up for what you're doing now, so long as the cumulative amount ends up being the same. So that was what happened in the Copenhagen conference back in 2009. Copenhagen was an attempt to come to a global climate change agreement. It was widely regarded as a failure in that uh, it did not come up with an agreement that would replace the Kyoto Protocol, which had largely uh, phased out by then. Instead, we had to wait until Paris. And Paris in 2015 was when we finally got this elusive global climate change agreement that we had waited for for so long. So in the years up until Paris, we gradually moved toward the concept of temperature targets instead. Now that we had our carbon budgets and the argument that the carbon budget was roughly proportional to the temperature change, it became a lot easier to imagine having a bit of control over the Earth's thermostat and the amount of global warming we were going to see. It became easier to imagine how you might try to translate a temperature target into policy, find the corresponding carbon budget, and then get to net zero before you've spent it all. Now we should say that as well as these targets changing in their nature from emissions cuts and concentrations to carbon budgets and cumulative amounts of carbon and temperatures, they've also arguably got a lot looser. Um, Stabilising atmospheric CO2 concentrations back in the 80s uh, at, a de- at a level that was considered to avoid dangerous climate change. At the time you had people like Jim Hansen, uh, the NASA scientist, who was saying that a dangerous level would be 350 parts per million or 400 parts per million, you know, both of which we have blown through at this stage. And, you know, similarly in the Kyoto Protocol, obviously we've emitted more CO2 
as a planet than we would have done if we'd been Kyoto compliant, so inevitably that means the targets we have now are looser. And in the Paris Agreement, we have this 2 degrees Celsius temperature target. 2 degrees Celsius was once considered an upper limit uh, of dangerous warming, and now it is considered to be the target that we're aiming for. So it shows you how these things have got looser over the decades as inaction has continued, delay has continued, and the situation has continued to get worse. But of course, the temperature target also opens up another possibility. And this is the idea of the geoengineering that dare not speak its name. That is, solar radiation management, or blocking out the sun to cool down the planet uh, to a given temperature target. Because if all you're targeting is the temperature and not emissions and not a carbon budget anymore, then you have the concept of potentially trying to cool down the planet to get to that temperature. So that the, for example, you can imagine that perhaps a future climate conference, uh, if the Paris Agreement is seen to have failed, might say, okay, well, we want our net anthropogenic influence on the climate to be two degrees Celsius. And then you can include that as an idea. So I think we'll talk a lot, lot more about this later because there's so many different ideas and, and concepts and important things to discuss that come up with solar radiation management or SRM. But this is just to say that in the shadow of Paris, there is this idea that if negative emissions fail, there's always going to be another technological promise lurking just behind the one you're relying on at the moment, you know, promising to fix everything for you. And that brings with it its own set of problems and concerns, just as nuclear has, just as CCS has, and just as negative emissions have that we've been discussing in this series. So we do have the Paris Agreement now. Now it's worth saying that the Paris Agreement, it does have these temperature targets as the headline, but it also says that we need to do that by, quote, establishing a balance between anthropogenic sources and sinks of greenhouse gases by 2100. So in other words, it is talking about doing this by net zero. And it sort of explicitly doesn't allow you to get there by using SRM and blocking out of the sun yet. But of course, if people then conclude that the Paris Agreement is impossible or, or not going to happen in some way, um, that the amount of negative emissions it needs is infeasible, then you have the question about whether we're going to hit that temperature and exceed it, or whether instead we would be left with SRM. So that's all I would say on SRM for now, but as I say, we will come back to it later. So to summarise really briefly then, in the early 1990s you had the Rio Earth Summit, we wanted to stabilise concentrations, and nuclear was going to save us. In the late 1990s we had the Kyoto Protocol, we wanted to cut emissions, and CCS was going to save us. By 2009 we have carbon budgets as our target, we have Copenhagen, and we're dreaming of negative emissions to save us. Now in 2020, 2019, we have the Paris Agreement, we have the temperature targets of 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is quite unlikely, 2 degrees Celsius, which is just about possible, and almost all of our scenarios depend on massive negative emissions. The prospect of SRM if things go wrong is lurking in the background as the next phase of our technological promises to deal with this issue. And as yet, despite the promises, nuclear power, nor CCS and nor negative emissions, None of these have taken off in a really huge way to reduce our CO2 emissions. Now, before the nuclear fans get in, I know nuclear is not quite like the others because it has been deployed at scale for a long time, but it hasn't shot up to overtake electricity production from fossil fuels, which is the point here. If you're saying that you think that the world is going to turn to some sort of all-nuclear power solution, I, I would be surprised if that would be the case, given where we are now, given the cost of nuclear, the rate at which it's being deployed, and so on. So the point of McLaren's analysis is not just to say, be careful when you dream of technologies saving us from climate change, because people have dreamed before and dreams don't always come true. 
Instead, you have to look at the interplay between policy, politics, technology, models, and targets. The targets are shifting not just in response to new technologies, but also in response to the promise of the new technologies. CCS is a good way of reducing emissions because it takes out some of the emissions that you're burning directly. Once you have a carbon budget, you can imagine negative emissions as borrowing from them. And in a sense, we'll always have Paris. If emissions carry on for the next few years without major cuts, you could still imagine us just cranking up the amount of negative emissions we dream of in our scenarios. That is, of course, what has happened when every new set of scenarios has been produced over the last 5-10 years. So there's no reason that we can't just keep kicking the can down the road on this and cranking up the amount of negative emissions we need into the future. And at what point do you say that Paris is gone? When we've actually warmed past it? When it becomes inevitable that uh, the emissions cuts we need won't happen? I mean, it's hard to say. There are a lot of pundits who would already argue that the 1.5 degree target is gone. I would agree with that. And that the 2 degrees target is, is on the way out. And I think that's unfortunately quite likely as well. The politics, of course, is driven by our priorities. Politicians want targets that are achievable, so the targets shift when they aren't met. You never have to come to a point of admitting failure, you never have to come to a point of saying that your efforts aren't working and that some sort of radical change is needed, and as a policymaker, you know, if you're someone who's trying to lobby a politician, there's an incentive for you to give them this positive story rather than to say, there's absolutely no way that we can achieve our goals at this point. Politicians, of course, are also very concerned with doing these things in a cost-effective way. And basically, they don't want things to change too much. Not in a way that might annoy voters or fossil fuel lobbyists, particularly in places where the fossil fuel industry is powerful. And this is where the technologies of prevarication, as McLaren calls them, come in. They essentially allow you to say, no, we don't need to do anything major right now. Wait for the nuclear power plants to get cheaper. Wait for the CCS to get cheaper. Wait for people to start using different technologies. Wait for negative emissions to come along. Maybe our our main priority at the moment is to fund a little bit of research and development into these technologies so that they will arrive in a few decades. And when those things exist at scale, the free market will sort out this whole sticky situation for us. They will obviously deploy the cleaner, cheaper technologies. And we won't need to change our behaviour now or even stop using fossil fuels in the near term. Now, it might sound amazing for me as a scientist to tell you that more research isn't always the answer, and I'm always in favour of more research, but there comes a point where you know what the solutions are or could be, and you just have to step up and actually build them and pay for them, because this is how technologies actually evolve and get better and cheaper in reality. And the point is that these technologies exist. You know, I'm not going to get into the merits of nuclear versus renewables here, but we have nuclear plants, we've had them for decades. The fossil fuel industry has used CCS for decades. The pilot plants have existed, we know the technology works. We have negative emissions technologies that we can imagine now. We have renewables that could replace large swaths of the CO2 emitting infrastructure that we have at the moment. We have electric cars, you know. The the only thing that's stopping these things from getting better and scaling up is the fact that people aren't taking the hit that is required to deploy them initially. So... If you look at Germany and its energy wind, for example, a lot of people criticised them because they had more expensive energy. They bought a lot of solar panels. They took the initial hit on solar panels, along with the mass manufacturing that happened in China, in part to supply that, that have made solar panels so cheap that it makes them now the cheapest form of electricity anywhere in the world. So the point is, at some point, you have to take the hit and start deploying stuff so that you can actually learn how to make it cheaper by practical deployment in the field. 
And that early stage R&D is not going to magically make stuff massively cheaper anymore. Um, there's not going to be any step change in efficiency or ability to do things, particularly when you're talking about stuff like CCS, where you're physically moving stuff around. Um, you, you, the only ability you're going to get is by actually scaling things up and getting those economies that come with scale. So there comes a point where you can't just kick the can down the road of research anymore and you have to start doing things to get better. At this stage, we're not waiting for anything to be invented that's going to magically make doing this cheaper or easier. You're going to have to change the infrastructure. You're going to have to change the system. Only actually deploying these things will make it cheaper. But it's much more difficult to deploy something at a massive scale than it is to commission another study or talk about funding some brand new technologies that will save us from climate change or to draw exponential graphs of how it might go in the future and then scratch our heads when 10 years later those graphs suddenly don't come true and don't materialise. Because it is more difficult to deploy, you know? Everyone wants to be the people who are researching some magic bullet technology, and maybe not so many people want to deal with the practicalities of actually getting the stuff done on the ground. Particularly when it comes to a government, you know, it, if you're a policymaker, if you're a politician, you can either say, I am doing something really boring, like physically changing all of the uh, gas-fired power stations or gas-fired boilers into hydrogen boilers in people's homes, etc. I'm rolling out this new technology. Or you can talk about being some uh, bright lights, shiny innovation, brand new technology is going to be developed. We see the intensity with which politicians like to talk about these things. So, I mean, in, in, in the UK, we have Boris Johnson talking about his climate policy. He focuses on nuclear fusion because the idea that the UK is going to be the first one to create nuclear fusion is such a big deal for him. And it's such a big uh, publicity coup and uh, people will think this is great action on climate change to be investing in nuclear fusion and you don't actually have to spend that much money on it given the amount of PR you get and the amount of voters you might win round with this sort of announcement compared to the boring and laborious process of replacing everyone's gas boiler with a heat pump or replacing everyone's fossil fuel car with an electric car. So you have to understand this as a gradual co-evolution guided by these factors, or you will probably find it a bit baffling how we got here at all. Sometimes it helps to imagine you're an alien coming at the problem for the first time, because it helps you throw out all of the narratives and the ideas that you've absorbed from elsewhere. So, you know, on Alpha Centauri, let's imagine the little green aliens burn these plants that are polluting the atmosphere and wrecking the environment. Okay, so stop burning them then? The point of this is that the reason we're here is not because someone sat down and decided that the best way to fix climate change would be to emit 500 billion tonnes of CO2 into the atmosphere and then suck them back out again and bury them later. We don't have these massive projections for how nuclear plants or CCS or negative emissions will take off and explode because people have necessarily calculated that this is the best way of solving the problem. Basically, you set a target, you make some assumptions, and you ask the model how to achieve the target, and it will trundle back with an answer... Uh, regardless of how ridiculous it is, unless you tell it what you qualify as ridiculous. The nature of these models is that they are economic models, like the integrated assessment models we've talked about. That means they're generally optimistic about how technologies will get cheaper and develop in the future. And they also prefer to spend money later rather than spending it now, because of the discount rates in economics. The idea that we will be richer and therefore won't mind spending the money, because we could have invested it elsewhere and got richer. You know, this is something that obviously embeds this idea of limitless growth in it, and not limits to growth. And crucially, the question that we can ask is basically, how can you do this in the cheapest possible way? And that's the question that we ask of the models. And not, how can you do this with minimal reliance on new technologies that haven't been developed yet? Or, how do you think this is likely to go down if we do it? 
You know, it's just the cost constraint, and we don't live in a world that operates like that. You know, I'm I'm a physicist. I want to believe in a world where every solution to every complicated problem is just the intersection between two graphs. And once you find the point of the intersection between two graphs, that's what happens in reality. And maybe you have some arguments about what the lines are, but that's fundamentally the way to solve problems. Reality doesn't work like that. And that, I think, is the fundamental message of this paper. But the problem when you look at these models is you'll ask the model, it will say, well, you could start cutting emissions now, but that would be an expensive route. Better to wait a bit for technology X to come along, then that will be the cheapest possible way to cut emissions. You can afford to wait a little now. The sense of urgency for near-term action is therefore reduced. So you wait a little, the gridlock and paralysis continues, emissions continue to rise as they've risen every year except for global financial crises and pandemics since the 1700s. And suddenly the technology X that was initially nice to have, that helped you smooth out your path to reducing emissions by allowing you to take it easy in the near term. You know, some, something that you were imagining might come along in the 2020s or 2030s to help you along with this path. Suddenly you need it now and it becomes urgent and absolutely necessary to achieve your goals. And then, whoops, 10 years later, technology X didn't work out. But don't worry, technology Y looks very promising, and it will be much cheaper to fix the problem if we wait for that one. This is how McLaren put it in Carbon Brief. He said, quote, The inclusion of BECs in pathway models made carbon budgets appear achievable despite continuing international delays in delivering near-term cuts in emissions. And despite subsequent critical analysis, very few models have backed away from including negative emissions. One contributor to this problem, which remains unresolved, is that IAMs focus on cost optimization with time discounting. This means they favour future promises of action over plausible, but potentially costly, near-term interventions. A similar mechanism boosted early promises of nuclear power and then fossil CCS. In each case, the delays in mitigation made the overall outcome appear cheaper to deliver, but as time passed, neither significant emissions reductions nor the promised technological developments emerged. Technological promises that had been adopted in models for cost optimization reasons became unavoidable essentials in delivering climate targets, even when practical or political shortcomings to them were revealed. End quote. The point here is that there was always another choice. We could have played hardball. We could have just spent huge amounts of money on nuclear power and electrifying things in the 1980s. We could have just spent huge amounts of money building fleets of CCS in the 90s. We could have started going down these paths and seen how realistic our models were by actually deploying this stuff so that it got cheaper and became more mainstream. We could have done the same to scale up negative emissions earlier, even. And at times, we could have spent more things on electrifying things, on energy efficiency measures. But we could have done stuff on the supply side and the demand side as well. We could have played hardball with the fossil fuel companies and banned them from exploring for our new coal, oil and natural gas. Instead, we find that even the UK, which is a country that again claims to lead on climate change, is permitting a new coal mine to open in Cumbria and is funding a liquid natural gas terminal in Mozambique. These are both stories that, as of January 2021, are accurate. We could even have taken tough decisions about how we live our lifestyles. We could have encouraged people to move away from private car ownership when they don't need it, uh, taking endless flights, consuming and consuming and consuming products that come from all over the world and last for a few hours and then need to be replaced. We could have taxed and imposed penalties on polluting industries, which would have made them find an alternative. We could have set an end to this endless growth and endless competition and instead focused on giving people instead of more money to buy more products that they don't need more leisure time to pursue things that don't require money that they might enjoy like you know having a family and friends we could have set strict supply side limits on fossil fuels we could have said 
we're fixing this problem and we don't care that it will be expensive or difficult. We could have done the, uh, sorry for the cliche, but we could have done the sort of wartime mobilization against this problem that people have often seen. We could have tried many of these different things, but we didn't because we always had a model that happened to be nicely convenient for the politicians and the wealthy nations of the world and the fossil fuel companies that said, keep doing what you're doing, wait for the new saviour technologies to be developed, and it will end up being cheaper in the long run. Now, of course, you can see just how vital the assumptions and the calculations and the theories and the ideas that go into these models actually are. One point that's been made a lot recently is that renewables have gotten cheaper much, much faster and more rapidly than virtually any model predicted. Particularly the International Energy Agency, which is considered an authority, there's a really famous graph of how solar power and it has just become so much cheaper than they ever predicted, uh, much more rapidly. Every single year they predict that these cost declines of solar will stop, and every single year solar declines way faster than they projected. But the problem is those projections are influential because they go into these models, and these models tell us how we think climate policy and climate politics are going to work. And they contribute to the discourse. You know, people look at the results of these models and say, okay, well, we need technology X. And they're not thinking about how, alternatively, in different ways that technology might develop, it might make more sense to focus on other stuff instead. So this means that many of the pathways that once would have been called the most cost effective, the ones that involved CCS and nuclear, which have remained expensive, those obviously aren't the cost effective ones anymore. And this is the point of this economics and the, the problem with relying on economic modelling for this sort of thing, particularly with discount rates. It assumes that you know the future, and we don't. So guided by those pathways and economic models, we told ourselves that we knew it would be cheaper not to massively invest up front in renewables, and instead to wait for new technologies to arrive. And that turned out to be incorrect. So McLaren and others would simply make the point that these models should include some level of uncertainty, right? What if we can't deploy these technologies? What if new nuclear doesn't get cheaper? What if CCS doesn't take off? What if negative emissions don't work at scale? That way, the models might do what we would think as being sensible and prioritise solutions that we know are available and we know will work to reduce emissions, rather than getting caught up in these technological promises. If the models and scenarios hadn't relied on CCS and nuclear in the past, maybe we would have deployed more renewables and energy storage and they'd be even cheaper now as a result. In other words, delaying mitigation just because a model tells you it will be cheaper is madness when our ability to predict how future tech will develop and what their price will be is not only uncertain, but also dependent on the actual path we take with these technologies, right? It depends what you do. This is what influences how much things cost. Um, And you will only ever be making assumptions to model that, and those assumptions may end up being wrong. And this is really the point about these technologies and these technological promises being mitigation deterrence. People who are sceptical of the concept will say, point me to a case where someone actively chose to emit CO2 because they thought they could suck it out again later. So you might have some examples for this, like uh, ex-President Trump eschewing climate policy and supporting coal, but saying he will plant a trillion trees instead. That might be a concrete example of that. But more broadly, this argument misses the point. People don't have to think actively that they're making the choice to kick the can down the road to effectively kick the can down the road. They might just view themselves as following the cost-effective pathway, or following the science even. They might just view themselves as developing the breakthrough technologies that will be necessary to do heavy lifting later on. Because don't we always rely on technology to fix all of our problems in the modern era? Or it might simply be a case of expectation management. 
The scientists and policy advisers who tell them what's needed to decarbonise aren't screaming, we must act now or Paris is gone, because appealing to negative emissions allows them to paint a rosier picture of what must happen. And I'm reminded a little bit of, uh, for those of you who are fans of British comedy, may have seen The Thick of It, and there's a scene in that where Malcolm Tucker is saying that uh, some expert has given him advice on some education issue he doesn't want. And he says, well, you just need to find another expert. You need to talk to the right expert. I'll find you two by this afternoon who will tell you the opposite thing. And you can imagine a scenario where a politician is faced with two climate experts, one of whom says they're really enthusiastic about this new technology which can be developed and you can fund it and be the person who gets involved with that. And the other one who says, I'm sceptical, I don't think this technology will save us. We need to start thinking about doing unpopular things like shutting down fossil fuel power plants or telling people they need to take public transport or alternatively just deploying lots of renewables that are considered to be expensive in the near term. You can see why it is that certain types of expert get filtered into the policy discourse, right? In a world where there were no negative emissions, though, I mean, it's not that people are actively choosing negative emissions over uh, short-term cuts necessarily, but in a world where there were no negative emissions in any model or pathway or anyone's brain anywhere, then the message from the climate policy community would be much less ambiguous, which is that we would need rapid near-term cuts in emissions right now, or there's no chance of reaching the Paris Agreement goals. Not that we can develop technologies that will allow us to do it in a more slow and cost-effective way. And so, you know, if you're wondering where some of this politics comes from, all of this comes down to a few things, really. Our faith in technology is to come along and save us, without inquiring whether they're realistic or what they might do in other ways. We have a culture of technological solutionism over systemic changes or addressing problems at the root, and I think that comes through in climate change quite a lot, and I think you can apply it to lots of other areas of society as well. And the other pillar of this is our desire to put profits and the dollar value above everything else while making decisions, even as we live in an increasingly unequal society, where the benefits from growing the global economy increasingly accrue to a smaller number of people, while the moral egregiousness of poverty only gets worse. These two pillars of so much of our thinking have essentially led us down the garden path to the point where we now depend on a technological fantasy that seems extremely unrealistic now to bail us out of climate change, or we simply have to live with adapting to the consequences. McLaren views these technologies of prevarication as a big moral problem. He says, quote, We believe it is essential to acknowledge this problem and seek to break this pattern for two key reasons. First, merely adding new technologies is unlikely to bring the climate challenge under control unless we also deliver behavioural, cultural and economic transformations. Second, technological promises allow those benefiting from the continued exploitation of fossil fuels and the comfortable lifestyles it enables to justify those practices to themselves. This allows their activities to impose ever greater burdens and risks on those most vulnerable to climate change, today's poor and future generations, end quote. And you can see how these same dynamics will play out within the technologies themselves as well, the same dynamic of politicians who like to focus on the technological promises and that allow them to kick the can down the road, invest in some research and hope it bears fruit and then you'll be ready to go. You can see that this will happen even within the technologies and their deployment. You can always say, yes, my plan is to deploy renewables or carbon capture, but not yet. Let's wait for some more early stage breakthroughs, let's wait for some more lab research to come through, wait for some more discoveries that will hopefully make the whole thing cheaper. There's an incentive to delay because you expect technologies to just become cheaper over time. When actually, ultimately, it is often deploying things at scale that are required to find ways to make them cheaper. Solar panels, you know, we've talked about how Germany largely actually had to bite the bullet of paying for them while they were expensive and creating a market for them while they were expensive for everyone to get on board with optimising them until they became so cheap like they are today. And there wasn't actually that many revolutions in the underlying technology that made solar panels so cheap. They are still almost entirely silicon solar panels, 
we've got much better at fabricating them, but it's not like some brand new breaking discovery has actually been the thing that has made them so inexpensive. But again, the promise of some future technological breakthrough allows you to delay and prevaricate actually deploying the technologies that you have at scale, as well as allowing you to avoid other options that might be more costly, economically or politically in the short run, but more likely to succeed in the long run. Indeed, even if you think that these fossil fuel companies are genuinely trying to look for these different investments into new technologies, you can see that it's the level that they invest in these things is at a tiny level compared to the rest of their operations. Not that you would know it to look at their advertising. In 2019, for example, the big oil and gas companies spent just 0.8% of their capital expenditure on biofuels, CCS and renewables combined, with the other 99.2% going to continued exploration and extraction of fossil fuels. So if you're really going to revolutionise your industry to make it carbon neutral to allow it to continue to exist within the next 30 years, you think you would spend more than 1% of your total money on actually doing that. I mean, it's the biggest transformation that the industry would ever need. And I think that kind of figure really shows you just how realistic it is for them to tout these technologies as the thing that will come along and save their industry as it exists at the moment. And it might shock you to hear me say that more research and snazzier technologies are not the answer, but... Another point that comes to mind is how the onus for doing this research is often shifted away from the industries that are currently polluting and slapped onto the government. Many of the big CCS projects and negative emissions projects have government funding, and you have to question why is this the case? Why are we using public money to pay for researching ways for the industry to clean up its own mess? Essentially, especially when the technologies already exist, as CCS has done for a long time, and basically just need to be refined, scaled up and deployed. I mean, ideally, you would imagine that if we have a system where some industry is causing harmful effects for everyone else, uh, it, it shouldn't be the role of the government to pay to clean that up. But instead, it should be you know, the role of the industry itself to do that. Or at the very least, you tax them intensively, and that pays for the efforts that other people make to clean up their mess. But even that isn't happening in the way it should. And it's obvious why this is happening. The answer comes down to profits. The fossil fuel companies don't want to do anything that will reduce their profits, and cleaning up their mess will definitely reduce their profits. It costs money to do CCS compared to not doing it, um, compared to just being able to dump your waste into the atmosphere for free. And that would mean that fossil fuel companies would be outcompeted by renewables or nuclear, or simply that they end up with much less profit for their industry. They may be concerned about facing competition from countries with lower standards as well, but certainly within countries that put in these standards, they would be outcompeted. And they can't countenance that. So rather than actually deploying the technologies, they invest a little in a few technological stunts, plaster that all over their advertising so that people think they're green, and then promise to invest more in these technologies in the long term and deploy them just as soon as they get cheap enough. But the way things are going, that may not happen. And of course, their near-term goal is always to extract, sell or burn as much fossil fuel as possible to make as much profit as they can. See, even if you're a techno-optimist, there are other ways of making sure these technologies are deployed. For example, one of the advantages that CCS often touts is that people you know, say that the fossil fuel industry could shift from being the problem to being part of the particular solution. The fossil fuel industry actually already uses liquefied CO2. The problem is that it uses it at present to push more oil out of the ground in a process called enhanced oil recovery. That is one of the main uses for CO2 that we actually have on the planet. And a lot of the CO2 that has been captured in these projects that are proof that the technology actually works that comes from fossil fuel companies using it to push more oil out of the ground. The point is that yes, the fossil fuel industry has the engineers, they have the pipelines, they have the infrastructure, they have the ability to do these big capital expenditure projects and build these things. They have the experience doing these huge engineering projects and they often have access to the sites 
uh, and methods of accessing the sites which would be best for storing uh, liquefied CO2, like, for example, in the North Sea we've talked about. And, of course, they also have the responsibility for cleaning up the mess and proving that their industry actually can be responsible and clean up after itself. So they're ideally placed to be at the forefront of CCS, and they often argue this to politicians and others. But then when it's actually done, but then when it's actually done, we essentially rely on them to deploy it um, almost out of the goodness of their own hearts, and the government funds research and development into it. Rather than taking an approach where the government funds research into carbon capture, you could simply say this to the fossil fuel companies. You must actually deploy CCS. There was a policy proposal that came out a few years ago that would have essentially insisted that they mandatorily sequester some percentage of the emissions associated with their product. In other words, if you want to burn coal or produce oil or produce and burn natural gas, you're allowed to keep doing it, but only if you bury a certain fraction of the CO2 associated with doing it. After, say, five years, you'd have to bury 1% of your CO2 emissions. After 10 years, 10%. Then, after 20 years, 50%, and so on. And you directly attach their social licence to operate to cleaning up this level of waste. If you want to extract more fossil fuels, you must pay to clean up the mess that they make, or it's no deal. The point is that is an alternative approach you could take, rather than relying on the companies to develop the stuff themselves. And, frankly, a lot of people think that if you did that, CCS would be rapidly scaled up by the fossil fuel companies as the price of doing business, and they would find ways to make it cheap, or they would go bust. For the planet, this is win-win. I mean, listeners to our SoftBank series or our energy efficiency series will remember the anecdote about Gerald Ford's emission standards for vehicles. Putting regulations in the way of industry actually can drive innovation a lot of the time. So Gerald Ford, you know, they told the car companies that they would need to clean up their act and emit less CO2 per mile driven. The car companies screamed that it would kill their industry and it would be terrible and you wouldn't be allowed to do it in much the same way as the fossil fuel companies say that about CCS now. And then they found ways to do it and the cars got much more efficient uh, in the next few decades. And this fits into what we've talked about in the SoftBank series about how, uh, how our understanding of how technologies develop is quite often incomplete. Regulations do drive innovation in some ways better than funding research because they actually force you to do this sort of deployment. And the companies themselves who are best placed to do this have to actually figure out new and cost-effective ways to meet these regulations as opposed to just sending a little bit of money to R&D in the hope that something good will materialise. Carbon capture and storage is not an early-stage technology now. We know how it works broadly. Pilot projects can always gather more data, but the industry could as well. And there's unlikely to be some magical new material that will be invented in the lab that removes the fundamental fact here, the fundamental energetic constraints, uh, the fundamental physics of what you're doing. You have to physically move billions of tonnes of CO2 around through the infrastructure, through pipelines and so on. The only way this is going to get cheaper really is building it at scale, and you can't rely on the government to scale up the technology all by itself because it's not going to do that. So if you are optimistic about the potential for CCS and a continued role for fossil fuels with carbon capture in the emissions market and in the energy system, then making the fossil fuel companies do it turns out to be a bit of a no-brainer. And even from this sort of neoliberal, neoclassical approach, all you're really doing is correcting the market flaws that come from them not currently paying the true cost of their product. The true price of fossil fuels would be reflected if they had to do this, which would then go into the rest of the market and send the signals which would make people pick different technologies. So you can argue that what we're doing at the moment by allowing these companies to dump their waste into the atmosphere is paying them a subsidy, and we should just simply stop doing that. And if you do think that CCS will be a large and successful part of the fight against climate change, and you're producing these reports where there's gigatons of it being used, faced with being forced to actually deploy it at scale, the companies will be able to do it better than we can with a few government-funded projects and lab-based research.
Alternatively, and this is the part that you really wouldn't want to say too loud to the fossil fuel companies, if it turns out that CCS can't be done at scale or is too expensive, then it simply means that <laughs> the glorious free market competition will kick in and the fossil fuels will become uncompetitive and they will largely be replaced by electric alternatives and renewables and nuclear and so on. I wouldn't really shed a tear if that did happen, given how deceitful and destructive these companies have been over the years. The important role of the government then is to ensure a just transition for the employees who have gone into this industry in good faith and who need to have a good quality life and who need to be able to be part of the solution in other ways and who may need retraining or compensation or whatever it may be. We don't want to do those people down. But when it comes to the strategies that are being pursued by the executives, they have a lot of culpability here. I mean, again, if you're a fan of the free markets, the fossil fuel companies could use a little bit of competition, couldn't they? Either way, this does a bit more on the fairness and justice grounds here than these ideas of uh, late-in-the-day negative emissions that take out a lot of the CO2 from the atmosphere. Because in this situation, the polluters are actually paying to clean up the pollution, which is a link that people want in social science survey after social science survey. Yet solutions like this are often spurned in favour of more investment in new research or pilot projects that don't attack the supply side of fossil fuels and mobilise the kind of funds you would need. Because... The ideology that many in government have is that you can't threaten profits and you can't impose restrictions on corporations because that would be bad for the economy, even when this is the best thing to do to actually achieve what you want. I want to point out something that's probably been bugging you, which is why should we believe that bioenergy with CCS or BEX will emerge when carbon capture and storage for fossil fuels hasn't? Because isn't it just the same technology with extra steps? And the answer I have to give is yes, that's exactly right. Because this is the reality of where we've gone. We've gone from fossil fuel burning power plants can capture and bury the CO2 that they emit to, well, actually, we need to switch the fossil fuel to biofuels from somewhere and then capture and bury the CO2 that they emit to cancel out the emissions that the fossil fuel companies are emitting today. And soon it will be, you know, we have to scrub CO2 directly out of the atmosphere and bury it with direct air capture plants or something like that. That's where we're at at the moment. And the point is that a world that couldn't be bothered to capture and bury CO2 as it literally flies out of the chimneys of fossil fuel power plants at incredibly high concentrations is expected to suddenly change its tune and scrub it out of the atmosphere at a tiny concentration of 400 odd parts per million. Thermodynamically, it's obvious that it will require more energy to suck molecules of CO2 out of the atmosphere at an incredibly small concentration and bury them than it would to scrub them out of the exhaust of a fossil fuel power plant and bury them at much higher concentrations. So you really have to question, unless something changes, aren't the exact same factors that prevent us from doing the easy thing also going to stop us from doing the hard thing? I wonder. And these factors, of course, they come down to the same thing, you know. The reason we didn't have this massive build-out of carbon capture technologies is because no one made the fossil fuel companies do it and the governments didn't want to pay for it themselves. It's that simple. If they can get away with not doing it, they'll obviously kick the can down the road because it's expensive to pay to clean up the mess. If they can shift the burden onto the state, they'll do it. And the way states are run at the moment, where governments have been historically unwilling to either mobilise huge amounts of resources to build these infrastructure projects themselves, or alternatively mandate that fossil fuel companies do it, and unfortunately many world governments still don't take climate change as seriously as they should, then we can see that there's probably not that much threat really that governments or fossil fuel companies will suddenly pay for a multi-billion dollar carbon capture and storage industry to materialise. And exactly the same dynamics, I fear, threaten to apply to negative emissions as well. One thing that keeps coming back to me when I think about negative emissions is reading a business plan for a potential company that was going to use negative emissions technologies, which I did a while ago. 
it was all wonderfully written, very management consultancy style writing. You know, they analysed all of the key stakeholders, they'd determined the technology readiness levels and so on. There was only one problem with this business plan, and that was the admission that essentially there was no business model here. If neither the state or the private sector would be willing to pay you to clean up your mess, then there was no way that the enterprise would make money. The report noted that there wasn't a major established market for negative emissions at present. And in the world in which we live, a business plan that admits there's no model for the business is quite a big problem. Now, I have some ideas about how you could have a business plan for this, which would have pros and cons associated with them. But the point is that the fundamental problem with CCS, which has not been deployed at scale, and negative emissions, which we hope to deploy at scale but have not yet, is the same. If no one is going to pay for it, then it won't happen. So this is the geopolitical context in which our global agreements are increasingly shored up and made feasible by the prospect of sucking billions of tonnes of CO2 out of the atmosphere by the end of the century. Convenient technological optimism and a focus on the cost of action rather than the cost or risks of inaction, hoping that tech will come along and save us. These things have left us in a very precarious position, apparently depending on all of these wonderful technologies to come along. I do realise I'm belabouring the point, but I think this context is so important before we start talking about these actual technologies, the last thing we should be talking about, as David Mackay said, and we're again tempted into dreams of technological utopia. And I think the one good thing is that when a lot of people look at this and find out about our reliance on these technologies, they do see more clearly than ever the urgency to cut our emissions now in the short term and not rely on some industries materialising that will save us from all of our problems. And they see also the price of predatory delay surrounding climate change and what it's already cost us in terms of the feasibility of meeting our goals. Because obviously this dynamic could go on for quite a long time. Have you ever had this happen? You want to get up really early tomorrow. You set your alarm very early and you aim to go to bed early too. But then you stay up late, too late. Better shift that alarm 30 minutes forward, give yourself a little extra time in bed, and so on and so forth. Until suddenly you end up with only 15 minutes to have breakfast and a shower and get out the door for your meeting. You know, we've all been there. But doing it as a species is pretty impressive. Or, as Terry Pratchett put it much more relatably, coffee is really just a way of stealing time that should, by rights, belong to your slightly older self. And so we can continue to twist up the negative emissions dial in our models and tell ourselves that we still have a decent shot at Paris and that we can carry on making only mild cuts to our own emissions and that the fossil fuel industry still has a few more decades to wind itself down and become sustainable and kid ourselves that everything is under control as we continue to shift responsibility and suffering more and more into the future. But if we're going to do that, we should at least be fully cognizant that that's what we're doing, and not bury the truth. In the next few episodes then, we'll dig into some of the actual technologies that could be used to deliver negative emissions, and give a more detailed critique of where they could or couldn't be applicable. Thank you for listening to this rather ranty episode of Physical Attraction. You can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com where you'll find all of the episodes of the Climate 201 series and everything that we've done to date. There is an about section there which will give you a full list of all of the episodes that we've done in an easy to navigate format. So go through and listen to some of the old stuff. You know, if if you're a new listener and you haven't listened to the nuclear fusion episodes, if you haven't listened to some of the great interviews we've done over the years, take a look and find something that you fancy and give it a listen because a lot of this stuff is aiming to be timeless and uh, I would appreciate it if you guys would like to listen to that as well. You can, of course, get in touch with us there too. There's the contact form uh, that goes through to my email. I try to respond to all of the emails I get. So if you have any comments, questions, concerns, topics you'd like to hear, people you'd like to hear me interview, please do let me know. 
The other things you can find on physicspodcast.com include the Patreon. The Patreon page, I put episodes up sometimes months in advance, and also special bonus episodes that you can only get there. And because I don't really know how Patreon works, um, the way that it works at the moment is you're only charged per bonus episode. And the bonus episodes that are exclusive and get charged for probably only come out once a month. So you can actually subscribe there for a couple of dollars a month at most and get access to 20, 30 early episodes or exclusive bonus episodes uh, at the time when I'm writing this. And I think that's probably a pretty good deal. So that's patreon.com slash physical attraction if you want to find out more about that. You can, of course, also support us with a one-off donation via the PayPal link that's on physicspodcast.com. But if you don't want to do that, the best way to support us as ever is to tell as many people who might be interested in the show to listen to it as you possibly can. We are competing now against the vast titans of Amazon and Spotify that are finagling their way into the uh, indie podcast world, which previously was a bastion of independent creativity and so on, where, you know, uh, (laughs) me, a guy in his bedroom with a microphone, can create something that becomes one of the top 1% of podcasts, you know. That's the, the romance of this genre, I guess, where you can build something by yourself over many years uh, so we are the sort of uh, the handy mom and pop shop of podcasts here compared to these vast Asda, Tesco, uh, Walmart superstores that exist um, in the Amazon, Wondery, Spotify nexus. So if you want to strike a blow for indies against the empire, not only this show, but your own independent podcast that you probably listen to, please tell other people to give them a listen and they will be very appreciative of that. That's the best way that you can support us to keep doing what we do. Until next time then, please do. Take care.